Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Every talk on this podcast was originally delivered at an in-person event for university students, perhaps for one of our Thomistic Institute chapters on a university campus or at a Thomistic Institute retreat or conference. These lectures and events are happening around the country and around the globe all the time. To learn more, visit us at www.thomisticinstitute.org and sign up for our email list. We'll keep you posted about what's happening next. And finally, please subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to like and share these recordings with your friends because it matters what you think. Titled my talk, A Spiritual Geography of the Afterlife, Thomas and Dante on Inferno, Purgatorio, and Paradiso. So if you have read the Commedia, how many of you have read the Commedia? Oh, good. It's a large number of you have done so. That's great. So if you've read the Commedia, this will be just to reorient you to what went on. It's a, it's a kind of, a, well, it is such a large work. It can sometimes, bits and pieces can sometimes escape us. Uh, if you haven't read the Commedia, then this will be a, a good introduction for you, because I'm just going to go through a, a general overview and then try to pick out some pieces of that spiritual geography that we can look at with respect to St. Thomas Aquinas. And, um, and I'm sure that uh, Professor Corbett will, will be able to elaborate uh, much better than I on, uh, on some of those similarities and contrasts. So first of all, let's look at the geography of the poem that we're looking at, the structure of the poem, which is filled with threes. Three is everywhere here. We have three principal parts or canzones. We have uh, inferno, purgatorio, paradiso. So a threefold part there. And then when we look at the constituent parts of each of these canzones, which are cantos, songs, we find 33 in each part, except for the inferno. The Inferno has a general introductory canto at the very beginning. So we have 34 cantos in Inferno, although the first one doesn't, it's, it's sort of over top of all the rest. It's, it's not really in the Inferno, as it were. It's a general introduction. And so as a total sum, if you're a mathematician, you already know the answer to this, 100 cantos. So an even 100 cantos. Each canto has roughly between uh, 150 to 200 lines in it. The structure of each of these cantos is terza verse. Terza verse is an interlocking rhyming verse, and uh, it's, as the name suggests, it's arranged in tercets, three lines per, uh, per stanza, and with an interlocking rhyme. So A, B, A would be one stanza. So the rhyme, the first and the third line rhyme. And then the, set, the, the last word of the, of the second line of that first tercet will rhyme with the first and the third line of the next 
tercet. So it's A, B, A, B, C, B, C, D, C, and you get the picture. So this kind of Trinitarian uh, structure to the whole work uh, just runs throughout the whole work. Um, by the way, for those of you who are interested in prosody, these are um, hendecasyllabic lines, which means that they have 11 syllables per line. That just happens to be the classic Italian poetic line for, this, for Dante's period, which is right at the beginning of the 14th century. Um, what about the, the geography of time here? What's going on? Uh, when, is this, when is this poem going on? Well, this is very important, as a matter of fact, because Dante is actually predating his work. He's working on this much later than when he says he is. He undergoes this journey, supposedly, in the course of one week. That week begins with Holy Thursday and ends on, uh, on the following Easter Thursday. And so we have the, the structure of one whole week. And as I've made clear on the, uh, on the handout, we have the time that he, he actually enters the inferno is Good Friday. He, he finds himself in the dark wood on Holy Thursday evening. Significant because if we think about what's going on in the liturgy, that is the beginning of the triduum, the, the sacred triduum. What's even more important is that this is all going on. This is all going on in a specific year of Dante's life. It's happening when he's 35, right, in the year 1300. He's 35. Why is this significant? It's because of that passage from the Psalms. Man lives to 70 years or 80 years if he is strong. So half of 70 is 35. He's entering into this journey in the midst of his life, in the middle of his life. This is... Uh, uh, the original midlife crisis. Okay, so this is this is uh, this is meant to it's it's meant to show man in the midst of life. So Dante, in that sense, is a kind of emblem, a kind of we might even see him as a kind of and every man a representative. Um, so. Uh, a number of scholars would like to see this, would like to give an exact date to this. Uh, the year 1300, April 6th in the evening. Uh, and that Purgatorio uh, would begin Easter Sunday at dawn. And then it would end uh, Wednesday, April 13th at noon. And uh, in the Paradiso, it would start Wednesday, April 13th at noon and go all the way to Thursday, April 14th of the year 1300. Now, it's sometimes not all that easy to work out. It's the, the times of day are easy to work out because Dante is timing these things according to the position of the sun. He, he is a very good astronomer himself. He would know uh, a lot of those kinds of correlations, the sun, in the signs of the zodiac, uh, which were used to place 
the time of day, what region, what quarter of the sky is the sun in. Um, and so we can work out the kind of various times of day for, uh, for uh, the Commedia, but as to whether we can attach it to these exact dates, there are some scholars who would argue that point. And there are also uh, uh, some scholars who claim that there, there are inconsistencies in, in the program, as it were. The, but generally speaking, we can at least tell the times of day. We can say that this is happening during uh, the end of, uh, of Holy Week and the beginning of, of Easter Week. Those things are, are more certain. The cosmology of the world that Dante places before us, I've drawn a, a nice little map here. Hopefully it's, it's a little bit more recognizable than those maps that teachers drew for you in, uh, in high school of Europe or, you know, uh, or of North America. Uh, here we have the orb of the world with Jerusalem at the topmost point, which is over top of uh, the gaping pit of Inferno. You might wonder why we place it there. This is the cross. The cross has conquered over sin and death and is directly over top of Lucifer, who is at the very bottom of the Inferno. And then, um, the, why is it structured this way? Because Lucifer, of course, falls. He makes his great renunciation, non serviam, I will not serve. He is sent uh, down, he is ejected from heaven, and this is the place where he lands. And the whole of the inferno is nothing more than an impact crater, we might say. And on the other side, Mount Purgatory is the result of the impact crater. We can see that it, it sort of pops out on the other side of, uh, of the orb. So we'll talk a little bit more about, uh, about that, uh, that progression from Inferno to Mount Purgatory in a moment. Paradiso is a little bit more uh, difficult to try to, uh, to, try to structure. Um, Paradiso is, is um, really just part of the Ptolemaic universe. The earth at, is at the very center of this universe and it does not move. The rest of the heavens move around it. Um, the, um, the, the Paradiso then is a whole series of concentric spheres so at the very center of it is the earth. There's um, then the, the, uh, the sphere of the moon. Then uh, moving further outward, Mercury, Venus, the sun, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn. And those were the only planets that they knew at, the, at Dante's time. And then there would be the the sphere of the fixed stars out beyond that. Um, then beyond the sphere of the fixed stars is the prima mobile, where we have the nine orders of angels. 
And then the Empyrean, which is the place where uh, God himself, the prima mobile, resides. And God puts in motion all of these different spheres. Um, this certainly emphasizes something which Aquinas would uh, write about, uh, did write about, uh, which is the instrumentality of all, of all of these different instrumental causes in the universe, that God not only causes things directly, but he also uses instruments to carry out his will. And uh, this, of course, accords with this, this notion, Aristotelian notion as well, of God moving the whole of the universe. And even from, the, from uh, Aquinas' day all the way up to, um, to really the, the 16th century, um, even in, in some works by Shakespeare, you hear references to the spheres. And if you were attuned to the spheres well enough, you could hear the music of the spheres as they, uh, they moved one against the other. The spheres were also a way of, of trying to explain the observed motions in the, in the sky. Um, and so if you're wondering about the ordering of the, of the spheres, why is the sun, for example, uh, coming right after Venus? It's because if you wanted to account for the movements of the sun in, a, in an Earth-centered, a Terra-centric uh, uh, conception of the universe, this was the easiest way of doing it. Uh, if you want to learn more about this, I would suggest a book by C.S. Lewis called The Discarded Image, which is, uh, deals with uh, medieval and Renaissance science and helps to uh, unveil some of the complexities of that science that we tend to laugh at. Uh, we don't tend to take the uh, Ptolemaic universe very seriously, obviously, because it's wrong. Uh, but if we look at it from the perspective of somebody from the medieval period or the Renaissance, uh, we can see that it was very complex indeed. So looking at the geography of all of this, uh, we have in the Inferno, a kind of, well, instant descent into the very bottom of the moral life. We have an instant descent into, um, into the vices. And Dante's depiction of the vices here is, is rather, well, once we get past a certain point, rather idiosyncratic. Um, when we look at, uh, if you've got the, the handout handy here, um, when we look at the, the dark wood, cantos one and two, and then we get to the antechamber of hell, okay, uh, limbo, which is the place for, uh, of course, for, for Dante preeminently of, the, uh, of all the righteous Gentiles who never professed faith in Christ explicitly. Um, then, and this is also where Virgil, his companion, uh, usually resides. Um, once we get beyond that, it, it follows a certain kind of, of uh, traditional logic with the incontinent. Um, here we have the lustful, the gluttonous, spendthrifts and misers, and the wrathful. So far, 
so good. This looks like the beginnings of a traditional list of the vices, right, of the, of the main principal vices, uh, with, of course, lust coming way up at the height of the inferno, so least close to the source of all evil. So it's lust in the Middle Ages was considered the the least of the um, of the sins, and uh, as we move forward, we have um, all of these sins which have to do with incontinence, and then we move suddenly to heresy and the violent. Well, you could say, particularly with the violent, that this covers anger. But what about envy and pride? What has happened to these two traditional uh, vices? Um, we could take the easy way out and say, well, pride is everywhere in, uh, in hell, because this is, of course, the, the principal sin of Lucifer. Um, yes, but... Um, when we look at how Dante structures the, the Inferno, we can see that he orders the sins according to their greater um, proximity to uh, the spiritual character of a person. Um, so we start off with uh, these vices, which we would say are, are a lack, involve a lack of temperance in some way. Uh, the vices that uh, of lust and gluttony, and um, even Spenthers and misers, and uh, can be seen in that sense. Um, then we start moving down to uh, wrathful, and then to uh, the violent. Um, but the next sin is fraud. Fraud is uh, is a sin that that involves a greater degree of spiritual investment, according to Dante. So this is a this directly touches on more something of of a of a more spiritual nature to to dissemble to pretend to be what you are not what you what you are not. And as we move farther down that list, we have uh, uh, panderers, flatterers, simoniacs, diviners, baraters. Baraters are people who sell civil offices. And then uh, hypocrites, thieves, fraudulent counselors, sowers of scandal and schism, and finally, counterfeiters. And you'll notice that he starts with falsifiers of metal, then counterfeiters of others' persons. ID theft is not just a 20, you know, 21st century crime. Uh, there's uh, counterfeiters of coins. Hmm. Well, why is that there? Counterfeiters of coins. Um, I would hazard a guess that this is the, this is, you're, you're counterfeiting something that belongs to the realm. This is, this is part of the state. This is the common currency of the state. It also has the image of the king on it. And in a certain way, it could be 
considered as as, um, counterfeiting royal authority. Uh, Counterfeiters of words, or in other words, liars, um, which touches on the soul more approximately than these other things which involve physical counterfeit. Finally, the very worst thing for Dante is treachery. Treachery is the principal sin of the Lake of Cocytus. Treachery is, uh, according to Dante, the principal sin of, of Lucifer. And saying non serviam, he, uh, he exiles himself in a certain sense, but he's, he's thrown out of the kingdom of heaven because he has betrayed his principal allegiance. For someone who had suffered as much as Dante did uh, from uh, Charles of Anjou's taking of, of the city of Florence and the booting out of the white Guelphs, which was Dante's party, uh, we might see why he would think of treachery as the very worst of sins. It's, uh, but it's also understandable, I think, from the point of view of, of seeing it as the very worst of spiritual corruption, taking something uh, such as trust, uh, such as friendship, and turning it on its head, uh, distorting something which involves, after all, uh, the principal virtue of love, of charity. And it's in this, this twisting and distorting of charity that uh, Dante finds uh, the very worst possible thing. Traitors to their kin, traitors to their homeland or party, traitors to their guests, and traitors to benefactors. Um, This again seems like a bit of an idiosyncratic listing. Why, Why are traitors to their kin somehow less worse than traitors to their homeland or party. Well, um, we probably see this relationship in a very different light than Dante would. To be a traitor to your homeland or to your party is to damage the common good, which is far worse uh, for someone in the, middle, uh, in the Middle Ages than it would be thought of for us to betray one's political party. Yes, it's a pretty serious thing, but we might, we might be tempted to place personal relationships such as kinship far above that, that relationship to a political party. In Dante's day, it was seeing the good of, the, the, seeing the common good as something that was much more important than, um, than just the individual good. Um, traitors to their guests, this touches on, a, on um, an, an ancient code of hospitality in the Mediterranean, particularly. Uh, the way that you treated your guests was uh, a hallmark of, of uh, basic, human, uh, uh, basic human courtesy. If you mistreated a guest um, in the ancient world, this uh, incurred the wrath of the gods. 
Um, and finally, traitors to benefactors. Of course, uh, Lucifer's benefactor is God Almighty himself, who gives him, uh, gives him being and keeps him in being. Um, by the way, the geography of hell here is, is that Lucifer is in this frozen lake of Cositis, the frozen lake because he himself is weeping over uh, the fact that he has been cast out, that he is immobile, and he's trying his best to get out of, uh, get out of hell by flapping his wings. As he cries and with the flapping of his wings, which, uh, which wafts cool air over the whole of the, the waters, which are added to by uh, the waters of Phlegathon, which is a river running down the whole of, uh, the, whole of, of the Inferno. The pit, the bottom of the pit here of, of hell is ice. It's ice rather than fire. There are fiery bits of, of hell, but the very pit of hell is, uh, is ice, and the souls there are frozen in ice. Um, well, Dante starts with these vices, all of these different vices, and there is absolutely no hope isn't this a, isn't this a kind of of starting off with the very worst and then ascending to the very best in the in the paradiso? Isn't this a uh, a very different direction from the way that Aquinas goes? Aquinas, after all, in the Summa, in his plan for the Summa, which is ordered according to uh, the 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 Trinity. And ordered according to the, the uh, really the the uh, divine missions, the in the in the Summa we start with God, and we start with the the one God, then the triune God, and in that first part we finish with the the whole of creation, getting to to man himself. In the Secunda Pars, we study the action, the moral action of man. So in the in the prima uh, the uh, prima secundae, we have really a study of human action. What what constitutes a human act as opposed to an act of a man? Uh, a human act that is 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 performed with the uh, with the complete um, rational faculty, as opposed to. Uh, an action that is, happens to be performed by a human being, but doesn't engage one in terms of intellect and will. Uh, then the secunda secundae deals with the virtues. It starts with the virtues, right? And then, only then, when it started with the virtues, does it then start to investigate uh, opposing vices. After all, uh, St. Thomas, like uh, St. Augustine before him believed that evil was an absence. It was an absence of a, of a good that should be there. And so for Thomas, the first place to start off is with good action. What constitutes the wholeness 
of a human action. Um, they, um, and so for Aquinas, and, and then, of course, he moves from that, uh, that description of the secunda secundae of, of these, these human actions. He finishes off with the, the, really the gifts of the higher gifts of the Holy Spirit and at the end finishes with contemplation, the highest act. And, um, and then in the Tertia Pars, he talks about the incarnation, Christ who has come to save us. Now that he's talked about man, now he can talk about the way in which uh, the whole of the divine order is aimed at bringing us back to God, right? They return to God. And so um, he talks about the incarnation. He then begins on those privileged means of returning to God in the sacraments. And if he had a chance to finish his great masterwork, he would have gone on to, and indeed had planned to, uh, to discuss the last things at the end of the Tertia Pars. Uh, these things were all added in uh, later by, um, uh, by his, his faithful scribe, uh, Reginald of Piperno and uh, others, um, mainly from his commentary on the sentences. So it seems like we have a, 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 a disjunction between these, these two approaches to the moral life. How do we how do we see how can we see any kind of any kind of likeness? Well, I think they um, the the ascent of Dante can be seen uh, as largely structured according to. Um, according to the similar sorts of vices and virtues as, as Aquinas has. And we see this most particularly in the Purgatorio, where he does indeed structure it according to traditional vices. So uh, in Purgatory proper, once he gets up past the anti-Purgatory, we find uh, a very familiar ordering, pride, envy, anger, sloth, uh, that's sloth, sorry, uh, for, uh, for our, our English friends here. So, and um, avarice, gluttony, and lust. Once again, you'll, you'll see the, also the traditional ordering of those vices from pride and uh, um, envy and anger, which were all seen to be um, kind of excesses to, uh, to avarice, gluttony, and lust, which were all seen to involve some form of intemperance. And then sloth involving a, a lack of movement towards any, um, uh, towards, a, towards a good, um, a lack of movement towards one's proper good. So, um, these are these should be familiar to uh, readers of of Thomas as well as as uh, part of the 
the, the vices that he mentions in the Secunda Secundae. But he, of course, is, is focusing in on the, on the virtues principally. In each of these terraces of purgatory, we also have the opposed virtue. And that virtue is usually highlighted at the very beginning of each terrace. You, in the, the first terrace, for example, the, the terrace of pride, we have uh, once Dante comes up to the, to, on, onto the, the terrace, he sees in the wall just opposite him a series of, of uh, reliefs in the, uh, in the wall. Those reliefs have to do with uh, the Annunciation. They have to do with uh, Trajan, the emperor, who, rather than rushing off to war, decides to judge the case of a, of a poor widow who's come to him. And um, so these exempla, these historic exempla of the virtue are usually the first thing that's encountered. And the first of those is almost, well, is always uh, Our Lady always Mary. Why? Because she is the greatest disciple. She is the greatest disciple of, of Christ, her son. And in the life of Mary, Dante rightly sees that we can perceive what the perfect disciple does. Um, in this, then, we can see a great degree of similarity to what, what St. Thomas is doing. Um, in, uh, in the, the, the second terrace, we have, uh, images of, uh, really, uh, they can't be images because they're, they, the souls on this level who are suffer from envy have their eyes, uh, sewn shut with wire, um, because the sin of envy principally has to do with what one sees, the, the good that one sees that somebody else has and that one wants. And um, so consequently, uh, they, the, the exempla that are given are, are voices, voices which urge those souls to uh, greater mercy and, uh, and so on, all the way down, um, or sorry, up the hill of purgatory. Um, along with these, uh, these, uh, these virtues, these opposed virtues, these virtues that are opposed to these, these principal vices, we also have a verse of the uh, Beatitudes. And this is important when we're looking at uh, how Dante uh, and St. Thomas are, um, are similar. If you look on the last page of the handout, there's uh, a table that I put there um, showing the connections between the virtues, the powers, and the gifts in the Summa, in the second part of the second part of the Summa. Questions 1 to 170. So, uh, faith is related to the intellect, which is related to understanding and knowledge. 
But these things are all related, furthermore, to the Beatitudes. St. Thomas, as uh, a good Dominican and as a good follower of St. Augustine, made use of a schema that Augustine had put together in uh, one of his homilies on the, uh, on the virtues. And this is a very similar kind of ordering to uh, Augustine's ordering. So this is a traditional ordering of, of matching up Beatitudes with virtues. This is important additionally because a good Dominican usually sees that the beginning of Christian life is the Beatitudes, not the commandments. The commandments are important. I don't mean to, to, to dish the commandments, obviously. The Ten Commandments are a very important guide. But for the Christian, what is the Christian difference and what does Christ begin with in his own teaching, but with the Beatitudes? What makes us happy? What are people really looking for? What can we say that every person desires? Every person desires happiness. And it's at the very beginning of a Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew that our Lord proposes the Beatitudes or in the Sermon on the Plain and in the Gospel of St. Luke. So these Beatitudes are the very, um, the, the pointing of the Christian life towards the good, towards uh, that happiness, which is, is the proper end or goal of the human person. They... Um, the geography of the Paradiso, in this sense, takes us up higher and higher beyond the, um, the, uh, the earthly paradise, which we've encountered at the very end of, of the Purgatorio. At the very end of the Purgatorio, Dante crosses the stream of, of Lethe, going into the, uh, the Garden of Eden, which is at the very top of Mount Purgatory. And in doing so, he forgets all of his evil actions. It's a kind of image of uh, baptism. It's also an image of confession. Uh, he obviously has already been baptized. Going through the stream of, of Lethe is... Um, is, is a, a kind of reinvigoration, we might say, of his baptism. And then at the very end of Purgatorio, he enters into Eunoe. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. But it, that's the, the river of good. <laughs> and at that river of good is, uh, makes him mindful of all the good that he's done. And then the geography of Paradiso is one continued ascent upwards uh, where we, we find positive examples of prudence, fortitude, justice, and temperance, these uh, cardinal virtues. And uh, then furthermore, the three theological virtues, uh, charity, faith, hope. Um, 
once again, Dante's ordering of these are um, a little idiosyncratic. The usual ordering is prudence, fortitude, justice, and temperance, placing prudence at the top because prudence is something perfects the practical intellect. It, it perfects the way in which we do things, which we imagine of doing things and, and, uh, and carry out a plan of doing something. Um, however, uh, Dante places this in the sphere of the sun uh, as the principal um, virtue associated with that. Um, we wouldn't mind placing it there in a certain sense because uh, that's where he places St. Thomas Aquinas. And we would like to think of him as the most prudent. But that also seems to be uh, farther away, a bit farther away from the Empyrean where God resides. Um, so that's, uh, uh, that ordering again is a little problematic. It places temperance with the contemplatives, which is a little odd. Um, and if we were to, to compare that with, um, with Thomas, we'd see that temperance is, uh, is perfective of the concupiscible appetites and so since it perfects a lower power of the human person, it doesn't quite bear the same kind of weight as the theological virtues or prudence. So this gives you a kind of a, a, a basic overview of the whole of the geography of the afterlife according to Dante. And I hope that I pointed out just a few places uh, which are a bit which, in which he and Aquinas uh, uh, are similar, and then a number of significant places where there's some questions about why, why these differences exist between them. We'll, we'll uh, spend some time uh, thinking about those, uh, those vices and those virtues as they are meant to guide all persons towards that Empyrean, which is the, the, the principal reason why Dante wrote his work, is to uh, guide the reader to avoid the vices of the Inferno, to embrace the, the hard journey uh, outlined in the Purgatorio, which I think most matches the, the kind of earthly struggle, uh, struggling against our our fleshly desires, our, our pride, um, and uh, attaining to the virtues which lead us eventually to union with God himself. Thank you very much. Questions? For the sake of the recordings that are going on here. Okay. Yes, Father Krastic. Did Dante think that purgatory had an exact physical location? That is to say, did he think, had he not met Virgil, he could have gone around the planet of the earth and ended up at this most happy of mountains? I think. What's that? Oh, yes, yes, sorry. sorry. <laughs> the question is, 
did Dante think that there were this that hell was a real physical place, that purgatory was a real physical place? Did he think of, the, of these as locations, real locations? Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Um, I I think he would think of them as places. I don't think he would have necessarily have thought of them as as uh, places uh, conveniently put on the earth uh, like this, or that it would be, um, well, uh, first of all, the geography of, of this globe is that the Mount Purgatory is surrounded by ocean. So, you know, so did he think that you could sail all the way to Mount Purgatory? No, uh, I don't, I don't think he did. I think, what's that? Uh, for something else, I think that that purgatory existed in, uh, you know, uh, purgatory and paradiso would have existed as as places, but uh, not, you know, not attainable just just by the human person going looking for it on the earth. Uh, they're they're places, but they're not they're they're spiritual locales. Um, they're, they are, well, they are places so that they, it's the more than just spiritual, but um, yeah, because they're eventually going to have to hold bodies. At the last judgment, they will have to be inhabited by bodies. So uh, they are places, but they're not necessarily places that you could reach by journeying. He didn't think that you could just uh, hop on a sailing ship and get to to Mount Purgatorio, I think. If, if I may, I would like to ask two questions. I think one's easier than the other. Um, so my first question is, how, uh, what's the relationship between Lucifer and Mount Purgatory popping out? It seems that um, Mount Purgatory is or, uh, proper to human beings and not so much angels. Yeah. Uh, so it seems that there wouldn't be any need for Purgatory until the fall of man. So I'm going to pause that there was a purgatory. Um, okay. The second one, which I think is harder. Uh, Can we answer the first part? Yeah, yeah. Let me let me answer the first question. The first question was was uh, what relation does Mount Purgatory have to the fall of Lucifer? Purgatory seems to be much more ordered to the fall of man rather than the fall of Lucifer. Um. I uh, I would think that that the fall of Lucifer um, as the, the principal tempter of Adam and Eve would have uh, some relationship to the fall of man. You're right, purgatory, strictly speaking, doesn't, um, uh, uh, there's no need for Mount Purgatory until there is a fall of man. You're quite, quite right there. I think we also have to understand this as uh, a bit of literary license, I think, on on Dante's part. Um, and one of the interesting things about this conception of it is that Mount Purgatory becomes a kind of reverse image of the Inferno. In the Inferno, uh, the Virgil and Dante are always turning left. They always turn left to go down, sinistra in Italian, which is not a good thing, <laughs> okay? That they're always turning left and they're winding their way down this pit down to, uh, down to 
uh, Lucifer, they're always turning left. Then they have to crawl down Lucifer past his, uh, past his legs to get the passageway that takes them up to Mount Purgatory. And at one stage, Dante, intelligent man that he is, knows that the center of gravity changes and that they, they actually turn around and Dante thinks that they're climbing right back up to where Lucifer is. But it's because they, he recognizes that the center of gravity would change at the center of the earth and they start climbing up out of there. Then when they get to Mount Purgatory, they're always turning to the right, which is an exact opposite movement of uh, all of these, these vices. So it's a, it's a literary device showing the relationship of that kind of um, opposite mirror relationship of, of uh, Purgatorio and Inferno. Uh, Second question. It's not so much a literary question, but I think a metaphysical one. How is it that uh, <clears throat> Dante presents us in the Inferno with bodies uh, before the Last Judgment? That's a, that's a good question. That's a, that's a question that, that Dante asks in the poem himself. Oh, sorry. The question, the question is, the question is, um, uh, wh why does Dante present us with bodies in the uh, in the Inferno and in the uh, well in the whole Commedia? Why are these bodies here when when there's uh, the, the Last Judgment has not occurred? People have not been reunited with their bodies, and that's a point he makes uh, throughout. Um, the, um, first of all, he has to be able to recognize some of these some of these persons, and so he has to have a, a device by which he can do so. And so the shades are the uh, uh, are the way that he describes it. Now he gives a more complete explanation in the uh, in the Purgatorio, because Dante asks Virgil, uh, "How can a how can these bodies of the people who are suffering for?" for their gluttony, where they're all emaciated, they're horribly emaciated. How, how can they be emaciated when they don't need to eat anything? The, the, the spiritual body, you know, there's, there's spirits, they're no, they don't have any body to them. And Virgil gives a, a more detailed explanation there. But um, Dante is, is just trying to to find some exempla for each of these different, even uh, each of these different uh, vices and virtues, and so he needs to be able to uh, have them as recognizable. And uh, indeed, throughout the whole of the Purgatory, in the Inferno, it's interesting to note a lot of the a lot of the spirits can't really recognize that Dante is still alive because it's all dark. He can't cast a shadow. And, but when he gets to uh, Purgatorio, suddenly he can cast a shadow and everybody notices it immediately. And uh, he tries to embrace one of his friends, a poet near the very, very beginning of it and his hands move right through. He can't embrace him. Um, so Dante does make that distinction of uh, pre-judgment and 
post-judgment, post-last judgment. So there's difference. He does know about the difference between the particular judgment and the last judgment. Okay, over here first. Um, so the way the inferno is like set up, it looks like the circles are getting smaller. Is he making any sort of commentary at all as to like what sins catch most people, or, or whether there are fewer sinners or worse types? Or... Um, the question is. The question is: Is he? Uh, uh, is Dante making any comment about uh, the numbers of people in these various areas of Inferno, considering that the uh, the circles get smaller as he he goes down deeper? Um, yes, I think that there's a possibility there that he could be making the comment that there's there are a lot more people who are who are uh, kind of uh, uh, evil in a in a daily sort of way than than the particularly bad sort of way, uh, the 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 really wicked kind of way. Um, uh, that that's possible. I hadn't considered that before, but yeah, yeah, there's a possibility of that. This is kind of a curious, fun question, but let's say if Thomas Aquinas was Dante's editor. As he was writing this, how do you think the divine comedy would have changed? Um, do you think it would be more like an entire structural change to the story as a whole, or just minor details in how the um, I guess everything is classified? So the question is, um, how would would Thomas Aquinas have edited Dante? Would he have made a completely complete structural change, or? Well, that's a that's an interesting question because we have to understand that what Dante is about is very a very different project from what Thomas Aquinas is about. Thomas Aquinas is trying to order the whole of theology in a way that will be comprehensible to beginners of the science. So, uh, sacra doctrina is being ordered um, for a, a pedagogical purpose teaching students about, um, about the divine science. Um, for Dante, Dante is, is executing a, a fictional work and the rhetoric of the fictional work, it, that, that's very different from writing a, a, a textbook. Um, I don't think, I don't think uh, St. Thomas would, um, I don't, I, I don't know. Maybe I'm I'm selling something short here. I don't think he would he'd be interested in writing a a, a kind of poetic version of of his uh, of his summa because he wouldn't find that language apt. He he wanted something that would be very very clear and less elusive. A L L U S I B rather than I L L. <laughs> Less elusive uh, than than poetry. Yeah. Uh, okay, over here. Uh, do you think it might be that Dante put treachery at the worst level because he wanted Judas at the worst level, and that's the one that makes the most sense for him. So you know, where else would you put him other than the worst? He is he is very much the worst. Yeah, you're. Oh, sorry. <laughs> uh, <laughs> 
uh, why uh, do you think the question is, do you think that, that, um, uh, Judah, that Dante has placed, uh, treachery at the very bottom of the Inferno because he wants to place Judas there. Um, I think the more important person is, is Lucifer. Uh, the more important being is Lucifer. Um, uh, that's an interesting point. Uh, uh, Judas as the, the worst sinner as one who betrays Jesus, uh, who betrays the son of God. Um, there's something to that in terms of a literary organization of the, of the vices. Um, but I think I, I, yeah, I, I think he's looking, he could be looking at both that and his own experience, uh, the, the, uh, the treachery that he had experienced and thinking about that as, as the worst thing, uh, the betrayal as, as kind of the, the most negating action a human person could take. Um, yeah, I'll have to think about that more. Couple more questions. Okay. Thank you. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, you opened your talk. Uh, you, you opened uh, the the section of Saint Thomas Aquinas uh, on how he begins the Summa with uh, the virtues and uh, what what it means to be a good human. Um, you begin your talk uh, by referencing the structure of the comedy. Uh, and uh, the rhyme and the, the meter. <coughs> Importantly also is uh, Dante's writing in Italian. Uh, <laughs> he's writing in a vernacular. Uh, you also say at the end of your talk uh, that Dante is writing to uh, mourn people about the sins, um, uh, uh, persuade people to maybe pray. Um, and then you also say in the question and answer period, uh, St. Thomas Aquinas is interested in writing a, a theological textbook. Perhaps a, a, a good question then is uh, the humanist Dante. Um, uh, if, if you can compare the intense, um, uh, what does it mean for Dante to be writing um, in vernacular um, and uh, St. Thomas um, uh, likely in a Latin um, or similar language. Um. Okay, so the language, the, the question is about um, Dante writing in Italian. What does it mean for him to be writing in Italian and to be writing for a, a, an ostensibly different purpose than uh, an audience, an audience than, uh, than Aquinas was? Uh, I think that uh, that says a lot. I mean, he wrote... Uh, <laughs> He wrote a defense of writing in the vernacular in Latin called De Vulgari Eloquentia. So uh, like many of his works, it's unfinished. But um, nevertheless, he writes this defense of writing in the vernacular. Yes, he, uh, he definitely wants to reach um, his countrymen. He finds the, uh, the a kind of He's also part of the, the um, Dolce Stil Novo 
uh, tradition in Italy, which is a, a tradition of talking about um, talking about human love as something which leads to divine love. Uh, so uh, he, um, in in uh, some of his poetic lyrics, he's praising Beatrice, his his love. And he sees that love as emblematic and also as um, productive of uh, divine love, of a love which goes beyond the, the, the physical and becomes a kind of spiritualized love. I think one of the reasons why he writes in the vernacular is to, uh, to speak to the people of his day, the ordinary people of his day, um, not just to the scholarly community. And at this period, Latin is um, Latin is still uh, a widely understood scholarly language, but it's beginning at the at, in the 14th century. It's beginning to things are beginning to change on the landscape, and they'll be very different by the end of the 14th century, where um, uh, Latin starts becoming a much more artificial kind of language, a language that's that's used to imitate uh, the complexities of Cicero um, and the great rhetoricians. So yes, he's he and he wants to um, he wants to raise up the common tongue as something which is capable of expressing even the highest things. Um, so yeah, your, your, your point is a good one, uh, that they are, um, he is writing for a wider audience. One more question? Okay, you were asking okay, before. So thank you again for your talk. Um, no it's really great. Um, the Inferno, I would say, or what I was figuring out from your talk was, it's the pinnacle or fruition of the complete subject, subjection of an individual to that particular sin. They're experiencing it in each level completely, um, like gluttony and lust, like, and taking that. Um, purgatory is more of a journey. And Paradiso, would that be then the complete version of a particular virtue? And if so, does that mean that he's placing different virtues as higher than one another? Um, because then would they be experiencing like different levels of what paradise could be? Like, I'm, I'm just a little bit confused on that. Okay, yeah. Uh, so the question is, uh, is, um, is, is Dante, uh, the, the, the three different journeys seem, uh, seem to exemplify the different virtues and vices. Is Dante placing some virtues in Paradiso higher than, than others? Is there a kind of an ordering or gradation of them? Mm -hmm. And like if someone were to be in like one level, does that mean that they are not experiencing paradise at the same, or like there could be a better opportunity of a, a greater kind of paradise. Okay. Um, so is there, it, it, does, does somebody uh, encounter, uh, is, is somebody's encounter in paradise 
uh, objectively greater the closer they are to uh, the Empyrean, the closer they are to to uh, to God. Um, the short answer is yes. Um, the, for Dante, as for a lot of the Christian tradition, we would experience, we would talk about different degrees of of sanctity. That there are different um, different gradations of sanctity, and if we think about it just in terms in a in what we in a very sort of twenty first century sense, we can each reason that each of us has uh, a, 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 as an individual has a unique relationship with Almighty God. Now, um, just as we have some friends that are closer and some people who are acquaintances, um, so it is in our in relationships with God. There are those who uh, are, um, or at least seem to be, um, uh, much holier than others. That they they um, live a life of devotion or uh, a life of of faith that that uh, is just qualitatively better. And then you know there are others who who struggle at the very bottom. You might say to to for for sanctity. Um, God. Um, uh, one way of saying this, and this would be a bit anachronistic for Dante because it comes really in, in um, uh, later in the church, in church history, comes up later, would be to say that, that um, God uh, grants us all, the, all sufficient grace to be saved. But... Um, you know, but but that's not to say that he doesn't he doesn't have some who are some who are closer to him. So, and in the kingdom of heaven, uh, one of the souls that Dante meets, even in the the very sphere of the moon, when he asks her the question, she she was a, a religious, and she uh, she was forced by her family out of the convent in order that she might make an alliance uh, in marriage to somebody who would, you know, be a prophet to the family. Not a, an unknown thing in the Middle Ages. Um, Dante asks her, why is she being, you know, why don't you, don't you feel poorly that you're stuck all the way down here in the sphere of the moon, which is really for uh, those who are inconstant in fortitude. So this is an imperfect virtue. She was virtuous, but imperfectly. And her response is, we're all in heaven. <laughs> you know, I, I, and really uh, the way in which this structure exists has to do with the nature of, of the lives that these people led. And since that seems to be God's will, and we're all united in God's will, then how can I complain? They're indifferent to, uh, in a certain sense, they're more than indifferent. They're, they desire to be where they are because they recognize that this is where they're meant to be. Um, does that make sense? 
Yeah. So in Dante's conception and in a in a Roman Catholic conception, generally speaking, there is an idea that that um, some persons are are uh, closer to God. Some souls are closer to God. Now that's that's God's decision, but you know and what, that's one of the reasons why we why we talk about the different gradations of saints. We'll talk about you know martyrs and well apostles, martyrs, uh, and you know doctors, pastors, etc. That's um, not to say that that somebody who somebody might be subjectively say if we're talking about religious, um, that state of life is in church documents called objectively uh, uh, more perfect than, uh, than lay life. Does that mean that all religious are going to be higher in the, in the kingdom of heaven than all, the, uh, all lay people? No, uh, subjectively, a lay person could, could perhaps be much more faithful to his or her call and vocation than uh, a religious. Um, and so be closer to God in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, these are mysteries which, uh, you know, which God, which are part of God's territory, not ours. So, okay, thank you. Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks, please consider showing your support at www.thomisticinstitute.org donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.